Hello, everybody. Welcome to another LocoCast.net, our Ohio Linux Fest recap edition. Are you recovered, Craig? I am starting to recover. I am not completely recovered from Ohio Linux Fest, the beauty that was Ohio Linux Fest, the beauty of Ohio and Olentangy Road and such. <laughs> we shall miss you because we're not going back anytime soon. Well, we're not going back to Ohio anytime soon for the no. rest of the year. Yeah, you know, it's it's not like we're we're not never coming back to Ohio again. I mean, we do have to get to the rest of the country somehow, and Indiana just isn't cutting it. <laughs> this is true, but yeah, so um, we're back and in action, and so coming out of Ohio Linux Fest, just a heads up, we'll have some material coming, some interviews we did, and we got one for this episode, and we got two other ones to put out after the fact. So keep an eye out on the feed reader for that. For everyone who we saw down there. Uh, thank you much for kind words, for checking our stuff out, and for just being totally awesome. I hung out with some Red Hat guys down there that were really cool. Um, met up with some of the Ohio folks that I haven't seen since Pi Ohio or before. And so had a really good social event there. I didn't really do any of the talks. How about you? Yeah, I didn't manage to make it to any of the talks this time around because uh, we were manning the booth. Um, it was nice uh, being able to, to hand out cards to everyone for you know the Ubuntu Michigan Loco. And for LocoCast, and talk with some folks uh, about MUG, which is the Michigan Unix Users Group, because uh, right. they seem to be the only, one of the two board members that were down there. <laughs> you um, had to represent. It was, it was kind of a light turnout this this year. I don't which know. Kind of odd. I you know on the one I didn't see what the final numbers were. On the one hand, it definitely seemed like the halls weren't as busy as before. But on the other side, I know talks or no talks going on. Uh, the, the table work was nonstop. People were oh coming my gosh, and yes. coming. I didn't get any code written. I thought I'd have all this downtime to hack on projects. No, it was just a steady stream of people. And we really appreciate everyone coming out, uh, talking with everyone. Uh, hopefully, you're you're now listening to the show because of that. Yeah. And if you're Subscribe. if you're a longtime listener and you wanted to hang out with us, you had your chance. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> Actually, we do have uh, the Ubuntu Michigan uh, release party, which will be sometime in October, uh, hopefully. Party! Yeah, eventually. We haven't figured out where it is going to be quite yet, but uh, look for that in the events. Cool. And you're going to be over at One Dev Day Detroit, correct? Yeah, first weekend in November, I'm going to go down and give a talk down there about Python, Pep8, and why code readability matters, and hopefully convince some people that write just ugly, awful code to write prettier, more readable code. And I've got to put some work into that. I've started some ideas on it, but i got a long way to go to get that kind of complete. It'll be interesting to give a talk like that. Very cool. I'm looking forward to it. And plus, registration is on right now. Early bird registration saves you some cash. Definitely. 35 bucks. Get to these kind of conferences, guys. They're local, they're cheap, and they at least get you out of the house. Well, and speaking of cheap, you know, it's not like some of these other conferences that I've heard of, you know, like, uh, I don't know, doctor's conferences. Yeah, my, my wife's jealous that I go to all these conferences and she wants to go to some of her own. And, and every time uh, she brings one up, it's, you know, it's like $1,000 for a two-day retreat to Florida. And, you know, that's before you pay for hotel and food and everything. And I'm going to things like OLF where it's free and you pay for your hotel where you get like a nice discounted rate and everything. So... It's it's amazing the great community we live in where we have so much access to free social educational get-togethers like we do. So are you planning on heading back down to OLF next year? We'll see. I've got I've got some 
possible changes in strategy with my uh, conference going. I, I might try to change some of the stuff up. Um, I, it'd be cool to do some more some more um, conferences that are more, uh, let's say, mobile, web-centric and stuff than I do now. I mean, right now I tend to do things that are Linux and, and Python and development, CodeMash and stuff like that. But I'm going to miss CodeMash this year because um, my wife's going to be out of town and I've got the boy. So I'm, oh, you know, that's gonna, a bummer. Yeah, I'm going to miss... I mean, Miss CodeMash, I'm probably not going to do OLF for the Linux side of stuff next year and try to oh, find Oh, come on. Me. We'll drag you down there. We'll duct tape yeah. you to the car. Come on. You said you weren't going to go last, last time around. You went down. You had a blast. <clears throat> yeah, no, I had I had fun. So uh, we'll see. It's it's thought process. I don't know what I'll be. My next year's, the only one is, is I've got to go beg and plead and, 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 and bribe my boss to get me to PyCon again because that was just too awesome to pass up. Yeah. No, I know my uh, my conference schedule is pretty much PenguinCon, Pi Ohio, and OLF. Those are the ones that I have to make it back down to. Very so. cool. So speaking of Ohio Linux Fest, we have our first interview to come out of that. Uh, I hear you sat down with the lovely lady of SourceForge and had a I conversation. Did. It yeah. was uh, we sat down with Elizabeth Naramore from SourceForge, who's the community manager. Uh, basically, she makes sure that all you lovely developer folks out there are nice and happy with uh, with SourceForge. So why don't we roll that now? So I'm here with Elizabeth Naramore. Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about what you do and where you're from. Hi, um, so my name's Elizabeth, as you said, okay. and I work for SourceForge as a community development manager. What does that entail? So what that means is I work with our projects to make sure that we're helping them be successful. Okay. And, um, you know, that if they have any complaints or problems or issues that I can step in and help them out with that. All right. Um, I also want to help them promote their new releases or, you know, things like that. Um, I also uh, get feedback from the general open source community, our end users, anybody who wants to give me feedback, I'll take that, um, <laughs> and then take that back to our team to okay. see how we can be better. Um, and then I also want to help us support the open source community, which is one reason, one big reason why we're here today, because we love this, you know, the community central events, and it's, it's just fantastic to be able to help help you guys, help them, you know, so do what they need to do. is it mostly for developers, or is it for the end users, or is it a combination of the two, or? Uh, a little bit of both. Okay. I've had, um, you know, SourceForge has so much software. It's we have stuff in all kinds of different categories. So, um, a lot of our software is for other software developers. So, you know, in that regard, it is for the end users as well as okay. as the developers who would be putting projects out on SourceForge too. So stuff like um, I know SourceForge has like the project of the month. Can you tell uh -huh. us a little bit about how that works? Sure. Okay. Um, so in 2011, we we usually have a theme for each year. So in 2011, our theme is to highlight uh, projects that help the greater good. So, um, okay. like for instance, um, G-Compress is our project of the month this this month, and they have, uh, it's an educational suite of software for kids. And mm -hmm. it's a great, it's all game oriented, so it's fun for the kids, but it also helps them learn and helps them be better. It's all, all different topics and things like that. Um, we've also uh, highlighted different non-profits, uh, non software that help nonprofits be better, um, disaster recovery that's going to be coming up. We have a few projects around that. Uh, so really just projects that um, are, are accessibility, as was another kind of sub-theme okay. that we had. So projects that help us all be better. Um, you know, we would lo we love that they're on SourceForge and we want to highlight them and bring them some exposure. Really. Now I know SourceForge has also been working with um, 
trying to redo some of the old stuff. I mean, Sorcerer has been around for quite some time. Ninety nine, yeah. Yes, since nineteen ninety nine, and a lot of stuff has changed since then. A lot, and it still is. It changes yes, all the time, exactly. as everybody knows, right? So, um, what what is happening as far as uh, some of the changes that are going on with SourceForge? So we've rewritten a lot of the code that okay. is behind SourceForge, um, and we've open sourced that. It's in Python and MongoDB. Um, we also have a few tools that we use internally that we've open sourced as well. So we we really want to get some community involvement, get some you know community de developed around those tools. Um, and then you know if people have comments, suggestions, I always point them to the fact that it's open source, so you don't have to wait for us now. <laughs> exactly. You can just totally go do it yourself, right? No, but um, we're still very open to to feedback and things because we can always get better. Um, but we, and we've really had a focus on um, UX, UI, you know, trying to improve that, trying to still be relevant, you know, be with the times, because we are, you know, we still do two million downloads a day, so we're we're still here. But I think, you know, maybe some people have written us off as, you know, uh, old school. You exactly. know, they kind of ha still have that perception. So we're we're trying really they hard probably, to change they that. They probably think the source where it still just has CVS. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. we do that. We, you know, and we've supported Git for a, a, a while now, and nobody seems to know that. So you know, those kinds of things that we're trying to like let the community know. Hey, you know, we really do have other things. We we do still support at CVS, and we support SVN and Mercurial Bazaar. You know, all these things. So, yeah. Cool. Very cool. Um, there's some also some developer support as well, um, like online, right? Like, yes, uh, like, like a support IRC channel. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We have a, an IRC channel. We have a dedicated support person that you know is there business hours. But we do have um, some community members that just kind of hang out and lurk in the IRC channel that will help help people out. We're trying to grow that too. You know, we like to build that community around that. So, and we, we also have um, the the code name for our open sourced code behind. SourceForge beta is Allura, which is A L L U R A, okay. and that there's also a channel for that. So if you, you know, if anybody's wanting to jump in and contribute, you know, we'd love it. Um, so they can pop in that channel as well. Awesome. Anything else you want to share with us? Um, let me see. So uh, we also have opened up our documentation for con community contributed documentation. Oh, cool. So if there are tips and tricks, even you know related to SourceForge, of course, but even um, just in running an open source project in general, you know, I mean. A lot of people have the same problems, and you know there needs to be a better communication. Right. Uh, you know we need to help each other. Like how? Oh, I did this with my project. It was great. It worked awesome. You know, or this did not work at all. What am I going to do? Kind of thing. Um, and also translations. You know, we'd love to have community help with translations. That's a big. Yeah, I mean that's been you know kind of we don't really have that right now, and that's a shame because a lot of our you know community is around the whole world. So um, exactly. so if anybody's interested in uh, contributing with that, there's um, a little place on it's sourceforge.net slash p slash forge which is kind of the hub and okay. um, there's a, little, a huge link that says community contributed docs so they okay. can click on that and learn how to do that. If, uh, if anyone has some more questions where can they get in contact with you? Um, they can tweet at us at, at sourceforge or they can send me an email at elizabethn at sourceforge.net. Okay. Um, those are pretty much the easiest ways to get a hold of me but yeah absolutely I'd love to hear and feedback if anybody has any you know thing good bad ugly whatever it is we'd love to hear it. So. Awesome. Thank you very much. You are very welcome. Thank you. So yeah, it was really cool speaking with Elizabeth Nairmore of SourceForge. And I had to admit to her afterward that I've been using GitHub a lot more lately. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, I know. But she says, too, you know, we're we're not really competing uh, in the open source world. I mean, yeah, there's, there's competition in that. And people, you know, like to make their, oh, you're using GitHub. I'm using SourceForge. You know, needle, needle, needle. Mm -hmm. But I... When it when it's all said and done, we're all part of the open source community in that, and it's nice to be able to have different tools for different things. Yeah, you know, like uh, SourceForge has got the new Allura stuff, which is turning out to be pretty awesome. Cool. I'm liking it, 
and you know the ticket tracking and the wiki stuff that they've got on there is really mm-hmm. cool but i also love github's ability to just fork things out of the blue right you know and and quite frankly the forking is just that's just the the awesome stuff that uh, that github you know brings to the table that makes it so that you know sourceforge wants to bring that stuff to the table and that yeah. so no competition is good and and um yeah we're all on the same team but you know we can have that discussion when we sit down with linux distros and everything else under the sun <laughs> well yeah and you know quite frankly everyone I, I really don't like it when people start, you know, doing the whole, well, my distro is better than your distro and your distro sucks and, you know, you, you suck and it just, it's, it doesn't, it's not productive. Sorry. No, but hey, that leads right into our first link uh, article discussion for this episode. And rumor is, based on a blog post from Bob the Gnome's uh, blog here, is that Gnome is thinking about trying to do their own OS, top to bottom. Uh. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, it used to be at one point in time, if you wanted to run GNOME, people would normally point you towards Ubuntu. It was like the, it wasn't quite classic GNOME, but it was close enough and easy to install and it had all the great, you know, GNOME, it was like a GNOME distro. Now with Canonical and Ubuntu going this Unity route, while they're still using the GNOME technologies underneath, um, it's not the pure, you know, GNOME experience. And so the thought is that GNOME needs to go and put together their own distro to provide you know, a pure experience of, of what they believe in their tool sets. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this because, you know, before it used to be, you know, back back in the, the early days, GNOME used to be just a desktop manager, sort of like, you know, CDE, uh, KDE and such, mm. where you'd, you'd have this environment where, you know, stuff would stuff would happen and stuff would be able to communicate a little bit better than the normal X route, you know, if you were using FEWM. But it seems like Gnome is, I, I don't want to say that they're moving up their own asshole, but it seems like it's very close to that, where now they have to control the entire stack and make it so that you know users can't necessarily do all the customizations that they want to do. I don't know how I feel about this, and I'm, I'm getting the sense that I'm not going to look at this anytime soon. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because obviously there is a lot more to a distro than just slapping a window windowing environment on top of it. And so um, I wonder how far down the rabbit hole they go, whether they do use some something else as an underpinning base, whether they um, you know go like maybe they go up CentOS or something and and build GNOME on top of it as some They're kind of. They're probably going to go with Fedora. Yeah, well, but, so the, the, my thing with that then is is that. Is it seems like they would just go work with a community, right? Hey, you guys build a distro. How about we work together on making GNOME rock on top of your distro? And you get, you know, every link on GNOME.org will point to your distro. And every release, you guys will, you know, be able to have the first and the best uh, integration with GNOME OS rather than build your own OS from scratch. So, you know, there's been history before with GNOME and, you know, having things on the GNOME infrastructure, not outside of it. And I, I you know, I don't know. It, it's a. I guess I'm curious to see where it goes. It yeah. seems like you would just pick a partner and try to work together closely with that partner. Everything I'm seeing in this blog post, though, is about building building the the bits from beginning to end. So I don't well, know. And I've, I've been wrong, too, in the past. I mean, back when they came up with KDE and, and GNOME, you know, very early on, they said, you know, we're, we're going to 
we're going to take the functionality of CDE and, and make an open source version of it. And I'm like, good God, could you come up with anything worse to base off of? <laughs> and they turned out to make some really awesome stuff. And after a while, I had to eat my words. So yeah. hopefully I'll have to eat my words this time around. Yeah, we'll see. Tell us what you guys think. Make sure to send us some feedback at feedback at net. If there was a pure GNOME OS, would you try it out? Would you put aside your uh, current installation and, and go that route if they were giving you one? If you're willing and able So let's take it from the mud To the tops of the table To the floor To the attic To the basement where it stays To the nerdcore underworld Now that's a long way Can't go alone But it's time to start play Better join the campaign Magic class arcane Grab another character Here comes the So next up for discussion And this is somewhat kind of related you know, at the OS level is that there was actually a discussion um, and an, a suggestion from someone on the Ubuntu technical board for a monthly Ubuntu release cycle. And a lot of this I kind of shook my head at, but there was one nugget that I really wanted to kind of bring up that is intriguing to me. And that is the idea of a lot of this is comparing uh, release cycles to the new for the Chrome and the way Firefox is updating and how, you know, people are just getting things, uh, a smaller updates more often so that you don't have these big times for bugs and this big separation for things to continue to be broken or have issues. Uh, you know, you think about it, while a bunch of releases every six months, there's actually a freeze before that. I think a month and a half or whatever before that six month or maybe two months or more. I think it's about two months, yeah. Yeah, so in theory, you know, let's say there's a new Firefox coming out, but they're not quite released yet by freeze time. And then you freeze your OS, you're actually eight months plus before you can actually get that in the next version. So where the browsers are going every six weeks. Now, they're obviously, um, Canonical Ubuntu, they have a solution where they're going to allow those things to roll in. But if you're a different software package that has a release, you know, you, you have to meet this, this beta freeze or else, you know, you're out for the next six months. Let's say uh, you're something like Banshee or something yeah, that's not sure. a browser. Exactly, right? And so um, it's intriguing to be, you know, hey, we can, you know, I can, if I'm a developer, I can get my stuff into an Ubuntu as a more rolling release. Um, it's not quite straight rolling release because it is monthly, and I guess the, the idea is that there would still be some um, sanity checking, you know, quality checking and stuff like that along the way. But what I thought was interesting out of the idea is that when you do that, you can do the same thing that browsers do by having different levels of the OS, right? You can have the stable channel, the beta channel, the you're insane, better be a developer alpha channel, um, and then roll with that. And so it'd be kind of interesting if Unity wasn't out with everybody right now, but was only available in the alpha channel, and they could work on that in the alpha channel for a whole year before releasing it up to the beta channel, which by then you would hope most of the things would kind of be working and, and just getting some extra testing. And then maybe you could actually work on Unity for two full years before release and it would get to be come out in a much more fully baked state rather than where you have to, you know, we're either going to push Unity this release or not. And if you don't, then all this work you've got is just sitting internally in Canonical and not, it's not going anywhere, right? You, you can't merge it in. Um, you can't merge that feature branch in. So you can't do all kinds of other things you need to do with it. And and that idea is very interesting to me. Uh, I don't know. I mean, what do you think, man? Well, I think if if it's going to be the, the, the monthly release, 
And it's going to be as such where, you know, every month we do the release party type releases that are out there. The one thing that concerns me is that if we do something as ambitious as Unity, that's never going to get done in these type of things. You need to have that that huge deadline, Mm -hmm. but you also need to have that time in between where you can, you know, actually cook the code in between. I don't know. I see that's the thing, though. I think that... If you've got the the different release levels, you you are having deadlines. You are going to have month, you know, things to get done for this month's release. You can set, you know, business goals of we'd like to get it in. We'd like to get this into the beta stage by you know the end of the year. These features need to be in the beta stage and, and kind of force your six month, um, let's say you know, hard on dev cycle at that rate. But it allows you to. You know, to keep people from having to to impl- to to accept half baked. I mean, let's be honest. The first Unity release was a half baked release, right? I mean, yeah. It, I don't. I, I, I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I mean, I think I think everyone kind of knows it. They're, you know, that's why we say get wait before you make a decision because it's it's just not done yet. You know. Yeah. And so the idea of being able to roll that in an alpha and beta channel for a longer length of time without throwing everybody else into uh oh my god this is this is not ready it doesn't have all the things i need i'm gonna ditch ubuntu you know kind of frenzy yeah my like i said my only concern is that they're not going to have enough time to get any of these major type Mm -hmm. changes in there but on the one hand it also would it would it would make the events of you know the every six month release not quite as significant no and i think i think that would be a huge win to you know have it so that okay Here's what we're going to have at the end of the month. Here's what's going to be the deliverable. Okay, and now we're done. And you do, not and not to say that they don't do like an agile type thing, but at least you have that constant release cycle of okay, we're constantly doing the releases. My my other question is, what happens to an LTS? What does that become? So you know that's why I think that's just a level, right? You have a server level or an LTS level beyond stable, right? That only gets security updates throughout the whole cycle. You know. Um, until a certain point. I mean, you would still, I guess, well, okay, I guess it kind of breaks what I just said, though. Because um, if you are doing monthly releases, you would, you would in theory, get, you know, stuff updated throughout there. I think you'd have to have something on the, the server side that would uh, that would lock in better. Yeah. Um, and you, and right. so then do you have, like, an, a Debian-type, you know, stable and unstable? No, I release? see. I, well, yeah. and that's, that's my one big negative with this is that um, someone's going to come along and not have their wireless work, and they're going to get told, okay, there's a new kernel that's in the beta stream right now that you, that, that that fixes that bug. Can you ins- can you move to the beta stream and see if that fixes it? And suddenly this guy is going to switch to the beta stream in order to get wireless to work, but then he's going to be exposed to a whole lot of the other things that were, you know are are disclaimered by saying, hey, you're running the beta, and they're not going to switch off of it, right? Because once yeah. once you get in a stream, you don't tend to move off of that back and forth. I know. I'm in the Chrome. I was in the Chrome beta channel. I did move to the dev channel once. I haven't moved off the dev channel um, really at all since then. So, my, yeah, and I had to move to stable because that, after a while it was stopping. It stopped yeah. working. So, but but I mean, you know, people don't just go. Oh, I, I now realize that since there's been a new release this month, the beta channel's been promoted. My wireless fix is unstable. I'm going to move backwards to stable. Um, so that I don't have, I'm not exposed to the rest of this in development stuff. So I, I think that would be a real tough thing to manage. You would you would have people just how people in Debian run testing full time, uh, even though you say it's testing. 
you'll have people that will move up and down this um, this chain of the releases and their their you know related stability and and have issues and I don't think I don't think there's a, there's ever a silver bullet for this stuff. You're always going to have problems, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I hope if they do decide to do this that it doesn't become more like the Ubuntu roulette that we have now where every release, it's like something goes wrong, you know, whether it's your video card goes wrong because ATI or NVIDIA didn't have their crap together at that moment or right. Intel uh, or your wireless, you know, suddenly stops working and, and okay, well, wait for wait for the new release to show up and maybe that'll fix it. Um, it, it always seems like there's something that's out of my control that I cannot fix. Right. right away. Nope, it's a tough call. So I'll be curious to see what they end up actually doing with it. I, I don't think this monthly release cycle will actually happen, at least not anytime soon. But it is it is some interesting fodder for discussion. Next up, Mark Shuttleworth. Whenever he blogs, man, I got to stop and read it and figure out what's going on. Right? <laughs> because this is going to map out the next 12 months of my life. <laughs> No, in this case it didn't, but it was something that I definitely thought about and I had actually talked with some people about before. Um, you know, there's a whole world of cloud computing out there, um, and the great thing about cloud com- computing is that it's elastic, and the whole point that it's elastic means that you can drive it via some sort of API. You know, making web calls, I can say I would like more servers or fewer servers or more storage or less storage and, and all that stuff, I can script and run from a command line. And the key to all that are the APIs that the service exposes in order for you to control your hardware infrastructure. And everyone and their brother has some sort of platform these days, be they software-only platforms like Heroku and Google App Engine or bare metal platforms where you get a, an actual box with root like um, the Amazon Web Services, their EC2 setup, or the um, oh, blank, oh, Rackspace cloud infrastructure. And so Canonical's got this thing where they want to provide Ubuntu with some cloud-building tools out of the box where you can set up your own private cloud and to work with things. And they're doing that through two open-source projects, uh, Eucalyptus, and the latest uh, person into the, uh, the stray is OpenStack. And what's interesting is that off the bat, when they first came about, both of them mimicked the Amazon Web Services, EC2, S3, and the APIs that Amazon used. Because obviously when you want to test something, you want to take all your scripts and your, your code that you, that you use now, you want to go, hey, can I run it over on this new thing? And try it out. And that works great to a certain point until those services want to add on. They want to innovate and, and, and do something that's not done on Amazon's uh, current cloud infrastructure and then they have to kind of go off and do their own thing. And once you do that, you start to have this like divide between, will my tool run on Amazon Web Services? Will it run on OpenStack? Or will it run on Eucalyptus or none of the above? You know, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people these days, you know, Amazon's had a couple of two big downtimes on their EC2 infrastructure out on the East Coast. And so people are realizing they need to have multiple f- points of failure for, for the whole cloud setup. And so... Can they use their tool set that they use to run their business? And can they do it? Let's say I put some servers on Amazon and some on Rackspace. And if one of them goes down, then I can just build up the side that's working and keep things running along without users noticing. So anyways, Mark's big thing here is that 
he's arguing uh, to an extent that um, OpenStack and Eucalyptus should be trying to stick with the Amazon APIs because as of today, they are basically the standard. If, you know, most people are using it, um, they've, they've been used, they've got a little bit of battle testing, they're not perfect by any means, but they're there, they work, and if everyone were to stick with them, it could kind of turn into the HTTP of the cloud world. And if for everyone that doesn't know, HTTP is basically what your browser and everything web talks underneath whenever you do anything online. Uh, well, sorry, anything with the web online. Sure, we can, we can get into the semantics of if you're doing different ports or different services or whatever. But um, It's become the de facto standard to, to talk between two different machines. I mean, the fact that you have different protocols that use HTTP, which probably shouldn't use HTTP. <laughs> No, oh, yeah, definitely. But you know, it's a, it's a good old fashioned port or port eighty is always open, and because of that, a lot of times where you might have built a tool or a service that was some kind of like socket listening daemon thing these days, you tend to build a RESTful API around something that does things, so that you're making just straight HTTP requests to web service and having it do things. And really, that's what these actual the cloud APIs are doing. They provide you know RESTfulish. Uh, API calls that you do to say fire up a new server with 8 gigs of RAM and whatever and then let me know when it's running. Um, Mark's argument is that if everyone were to kind of stick together you can it allows people to build tools on top of these cloud services without without having to worry about everything underneath. Um, and obviously they care about this because Amazon or um, Canonical is trying to build into the OS a set of tools to help you build a cloud infrastructure. And if there's a common protocol that they could use across all these services, then Canonical can say, hey, install Ubuntu server, and then you can build things up you know, on Rackspace, or you can build them on EC2, or you can build them on, um, you know, I, I don't know what else we've got out there right now. You, you could build it out in a whole bunch of boxes in your garage with, right. you know, and make it Bob's own cloud. Yeah. Basically, it's, it's nice <laughs> because it's, you know, it's... Uh, uh, standards are king, uh, basically, in the world out here, especially when things start talking to each other. Standards rule all. But from the standpoint of these services, the OpenStack and Eucalyptus is, you know, their argument is that it, it kind of prevents them from innovating because everything they have, they do, they feel like they have to conform to what Amazon does. And, and it's not kinda, so much innovating, it's differentiating. Well, I mean, it is and it isn't, right? I mean... Um, it's it's different. I mean, there there are things that can be done that aren't currently done on on Amazon's cloud. I mean, the fact that Amazon adds a new freaking feature every month is proof of that. And and I think that's part of the problem with this is that just you know whenever you follow somebody else's uh, you know API or whatever, you're kind of doomed to be forever chasing them. It, you're never really going to be able to like loop around and get ahead of them. And, and and I understand the argument for that from OpenStack and Eucalyptus, but as someone who writes code and tools and wants to be able to like port my stuff around, I definitely agree with Mark that hey, I would love to have a common you know a common wrapper around this stuff that I that I only have to learn once and write my code to. Well, I think the the it's a laudable goal, and it's a laudable goal for people at the software level to have, because that way you can just take all of your stuff, and it doesn't matter if it's a box in your house or a box, you know, over at Rackspace or Amazon, right. it allows you to the commonality. But I think that there's going to be some pushback from these vendors because it doesn't allow them to really bring out some of their own you know, uniqueness into this. It basically treats them as a box of bits. It does. It, it really does. And that's, and that's why I, I can sympathize with the people that are, you know, they're building the alternatives to the Amazon cloud infrastructure. Yeah. 
I think that's that's going to be the huge pushback, and it's going to take someone to say, okay, we will we will work along with this. We will come up with this standard and such, and it would be it would be awesome if they would come out and say, okay, well, this is this is the standard as it exists now, and here's how we would like to expand upon that in the future, and mm-hmm. be willing to share with everyone else in there and make make a better cloud platform overall, yeah. as opposed to, well, we're just going to do our own little thing, and this is how we're going to play today, and everyone else can go, you know, play with themselves, and you know, then there's no collaboration whatsoever. No, It'll be but, interesting, though, to see if Mark can actually get everyone to do that, though. See, that, that's what's cool. One, he has one great uh, example case here, and that is the case of um, actual web servers, where he basically says, you know what, Everyone always starts out with Apache because it's just like the one that just works and it's easy to get going and, and everyone's used Apache. However, over time, people have gone to things like Nginx and Cherokee and Tiny, uh, what's the Tiny, uh, I forget what the Tiny well, there's Lighty, H- Lighty. Yeah, Lighty and stuff like that because yeah. there are different use cases that require different tools and, and they all still speak HTTP, but they're different and they have some own unique characteristics that you may move to them for. And so I, I think that's kind of an interesting use, uh, interesting uh, case and analogy here where like everything, you know, you always start with maybe Amazon, but then when you need something, you can you fire up OpenStack and use that for what your particular need is. But they, they talk enough common stuff underneath to do the same thing that you can kind of use them interchangeably. Uh, so it's interesting. It's an interesting idea. What I love about Mark, though, and I don't always by any means agree or like everything Mark says or puts up here, but I have to give him credit when he puts in here, quote, I'm willing to contribute resources to get such a standard off the ground. You know, forget consortiums, working groups, processes, or lobbying forums. What we need here are savvy folks that know the tools to get together and, you know, let me know if you're interested. So he's not he's just willing. not shy. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's more than just, hey, here's my, you know, my manifesto blog posts. It's like, all right contact me i you know let's get stuff together let's get some resources together let's start working on something so um a man of action he definitely can be all right now let's get into some architecture um i was poking around i uh i saw uh, a job post for actually for launchpad the other day and one of the things i thought was interesting in the job post was it linked to an article about what they're they kind of want to work on with launchpad and that is breaking up the current architecture into a set of services that can communicate together and this is something that i have i have gotten on the bandwagon and i have preached at work and at coffeehouse coders and just anytime anyone brings up how should i design my system I always, always, always jump at the chance to scream that you should be building services that talk first. You know, build APIs, then build front ends around your APIs. Um, and I really thought this was a great, um, you know, article or uh, I don't know what it is. It's a wiki page basically on their on their dev site for Launchpad here. And we'll have the link in the show notes that talks about how, you know, we need to start thinking about services, not database uh, structure. We need to think about, you know, not user interfaces, but just how things are used and what they do, and and what need, you know, what's what operations need to be enabled for this application to work. Well, that too, and also be able to split off the stuff so you don't have one honking server out there with your app on it. Exactly. And then, you know, try and figure out later on. Okay, how do we get this on multiple service servers and such? Yeah, so going back to the SourceForge interview, I know one of the things that the new SourceForge stuff does is it, is it builds things as 
uh, apps that you can enable or disable and all that. What's great when you do these things, when you think at the, the smaller level like that, is you you split off the um, they're not tied together again. You have more abstraction. You can you can move the parts of the system without having to worry about how does it affect everything else as much. Well, you know, as, as long as you stick to a set of APIs, you need to go through and refactor, rebuild this thing from the ground up. Use a different data backend. Maybe you need to go uh, NoSQL because this certain part of the app needs it. You can do that stuff, and, and you know when they're when they're separated. But when you have some monolithic application going across all this, you know this infrastructure, it's just so tough to do. Well, what makes it in- nice though is that you can, you know, first off, you can test each one of these applications. Testing is huge as a for this. unit. So then yeah. you can say, okay, you know, the the wiki page entry is all set, mm-hmm. it's all ready to go. The second thing is that at a later date, if you want to update the stuff or you want to decommission it, you know, say tomorrow yeah. we say, okay, we're not doing wikis anymore. It makes it very easy to, as a separate application, to say, okay, I'm going to turn this off. And no harm, no foul, here's your data, whatever. Right. As opposed to in your giant monolithic application of trying to comment out the entire wiki area or whatnot. Right. And then redeploy all of your stuff. That just sucks. So, yeah, I definitely encourage everyone to take out of this. I, I Definitely check it out. Um, there, I, I should actually spend some time finding some other articles that go on this line. But the, the idea is that if you stop and think about your app in smaller pieces and think of APIs first, you end up having to do a lot of design work on what it is you're actually doing. You know, what tasks can be accomplished with your application at a lower level. And so you tend, not to say that you don't have to go back and change and adjust things, but you tend to do more forethought and more design planning up front Rather than just going, you know, I'm going to start. Fe- I'm going to start coding this feature here, and then oh, I need another feature. Let me just tack that on. I need another one. Let me tack that one on. You know, you have to think about the stuff up front more, and I think it really allows you to have more interchangeable parts in a hurry. And then once you get to th- like in today's world of you need a mobile version of your app, you need backend services that talk to the app. You need to have, you know, um, outside uh, companies, third parties that want to have access to your application. You know, these days, so many things talk to an application. It's not just fired up Apache and serve out web pages anymore. And if you go API first, it really enables you to be able to quickly throw up things like, you know what, I want some kind of queue-based task runner going off in the background. It can just use the API to get all that work done. You know, or I need to throw up a mobile application, uh, you know, an iOS or an Android app for our for our web service here that we've got. If you've done APIs first, it's already a web service. You just take and you start talking to it. Whereas if it's not, you're, you're trying to figure out, well, do I just do like a web front end? And then if I do, do I just have to rebuild all this UI? And then, well, what if my current, you know, calls aren't set up for the bandwidth requirements of mobile? I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a nightmare to go backwards when you, sh- you know, and, and to split the stuff up. So kudos to Launchpad team for recognizing this and for putting this on the, uh, the go-ahead you know, task list to let's move and, and work on this. And hopefully it's a lesson for a lot of other teams out there that are starting up projects that could definitely be done in a more modular fashion. And one thing, too, is that you know, God forbid this actually happens to you, but let's say that your company uh, is bought out by another company and has to link up your application with another application. And it's like the worst application possible. It's like <laughs> SAP on oh, a mainframe no. somewhere. You know, this is this is where these design decisions come into play. And God forbid you actually have to think about your application for a second before coding it, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Haven't you heard? You just start writing a test, then you write code, and you go. <laughs> there you go. 
All right. I was going to make this a Rick's rant, but I need someone to help keep me under control. So <laughs> we're going to do this one in public. There was someone out there happened to put up a blog post, and I know anyone's allowed to do that, which is probably why I have problems with the internet these days. <laughs> but this is actually a blog post I've now seen a few times now, and it's really starting to irritate me. And the whole crux of this is, you know, the, the quote is, uh, ORM is an anti-pattern, okay? so What is an anti-pattern, Brother Rick? <laughs> <laughs> so first, let's just do the, the ORM is your object relational mapper. I gave a talk on SQLchemy, which is a Python ORM at PyOhio. So obviously that means that I'm, I'm a bit pro-ORM. I'm talking about them. But let's just, let's just go through this. We're going to do this very logically, right? So first, I'm just going to use his exact definition for what an anti-pattern is because he obviously had some pre-existing criteria that he was trying to make his argument against. And let's just start there, okay? So he has two points for something to be an anti-pattern. It, A, must initially appear to be beneficial, but long-term has more bad consequences than good ones. All right? Okay. So basically, it appears cool up front, but over time, you realize, oh, crap, that was a bad decision or something. Okay? All right. That makes sense to me. I can agree that there are a lot of things out there like that. Um, the next one is an alternative solution exists that is proven and repeatable. Uh, this one's a little okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess I can kind of see it that there's a better way to do things already. Um, but, hey. So let's we'll, go. We'll roll with this definition. We'll, yeah, we'll, we're going to work with we're going to work with this definition. Okay. So first up, let's just say reasons why you would use an ORM, and let's see if we can figure out what, how these use cases are broken according to this anti-pattern definition. All right. So one of the reasons you might use an ORM is is it helps make your database code database agnostic. Right. There are lots of databases out there. There's SQLite, MySQL, Postgres. We can just forget about MySQL, but we won't. Um, you know, there's Microsoft has one. Oracle has a database. People have them. I've heard it's popular too. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a bunch out there. Um, <laughs> now, one thing you're going to hear people say about this is that initially that's going to appear beneficial. I can move my databases around, but the argument is that at some point in time, every application gets to be locked into a certain data store or another. And I'm going to say, yes, this does tend to happen. And in my opinion, it happens entirely too freaking much because people don't use tools to keep portability like an ORM. Um, we've actually got cases at, at work where we're MySQL shop, much to my disappointment. And we have had cases when it came to building custom MySQL functions and cases for implementing full text search. There is a better database that to, to do both of those things. It's called Postgres. And... What was a real pain in the neck was that for both these applications, it, because they weren't, they were using a lot of very uh, MySQL hand-coded uh, SQL, they weren't easily converted to run on Postgres. So instead of that, we actually had people spending days and days and days trying to A, get MySQL full text to not suck, which just isn't possible, and B, to write low-level C uh, functions that MySQL could use to implement custom functions within your SQL call. So you know when you do like select max some column, that max is a function that, that MySQL knows about. And you can write custom ones, which we needed to do a ag uh, weighted group aggregate um, calculation across our, our data set. So instead of just writing it in Python, which I did in a day, and tested and proof of, proof of concept it on Postgres, um, we actually had to spend several days and a lot of downtime, and the, the damn thing still breaks on occasion, which brings the whole database server down. So 
Um, because we were yeah. not using an ORM, right? And I, I proved that we could move to Postgres. However, the, the, the work of moving the stuff because we were not using an ORM uh, to keep things agnostic hurt us and prevented us from moving on. So, yes, not everyone has to move data stores out there, but I think people don't do it as much as they should because they're not, doing, they're not writing their code in a way that allows them to do it without basically rewriting an application. Well, it's more often than you think, though, because, you know, at some point, let's just say uh, Oracle comes along and says, you know what, MySQL, it's a nice, very, it's a very nice database you've got there, and uh, we'd like to charge you for support or something along those lines. And your boss comes to you and says, okay, we're going to move to Postgres now. Yeah. You know, it or something along the way will happen where you will have to migrate data from one database to another. Right. And... Having a layer on top of it, like an ORM, will make that a lot easier for you. Right. So let's go to our next point. Why you use an ORM? Um, personally, I love an ORM for building dynamic queries. And so this gets this hits two points here that I'm going to go ahead and hit on because one of his arguments was that um, that really part of the problem with an ORM is that you're trying to map objects into relational data stores. And objects are not relational by default kind of thing. There are two mental models or two different ways of working with things. And I completely agree with that. However, he jumped off the shark here and went, so what you should be doing is using a NoSQL solution to start with because that allows you to just take your object and directly shove it into a key value store and have objects in your, in your data store. And I'm sorry, but if, to say that is a fundamental, I think, misrepresentation of what the advantages of NoSQL are for and the limitations of, of what actual real SQL is for, okay? So, first of all, if your application requires you to have dynamically uh, buildable queries where you don't know what the, the client's going to ask for ahead of time, SQL is the way to go. It's just It just flat out is. Um, NoSQL is great um, when you need very high throughput on your writes uh, and your reads, However, it's very inflexible. You can create indexes to be able to do uh, performance searches across, you know, your your keys and your uh, and your data store. However, just about every data store out there, you you have to know ahead of time what you're what you're going to want to search on and how you're going to want to search on it to build the indexes correctly. I just got through helping a friend of mine who's got his MongoDB thing where I was like, oh, well, all you got to do is just do this query this way and then descending. And he goes, yeah, but I don't have an index on that column right now, that 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 key. I'm like, oh, well, okay, then what do you got to do? Well, to you have to create one. Creating one on a large data set can take days. Um, CouchDB, there are cases where if you've got, you know, uh, I mean, a, a huge data store on CouchDB and you go to add a new index, it will actually churn for days to create the B tree that you can then search through uh, in, a, in a quick fashion. So just saying that it's a matter of whether or not you want to put objects into a data store or not, it's just, that's just BS. So we're going to skip that part. That's, 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 that's trading up one problem for another problem altogether. And yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Anyways, so, um, but one of the things I love about an ORM is that I, I never build SQL from string concatenation anymore, which if anyone has ever, and I, at one point in time I, I did this in, My PHP, hands up. in PHP land, was to try to actually build SQL with concatenating strings, figuring out where you need the commas, figuring out what needs to be parent or not. When you start doing joins, like is it an optional join, you know, you have to go back and actually 
adjust the string at both the select the from and the you know where clause level to be able to add a new table and you know a new table into your query with the join syntax then you got to add which select items you want and you gotta go into the where's and add which your new where conditions are on the second table and all that it's it's just a, a good grief it's it's a, it's near impossible to do right i mean it just is and you're going to well, constantly it's painful have to do bugs. too and you're going to be very limited, you know, limited yeah. as far as what you can do based on what your string concatenation library that you've constructed and beat yourself over the head with can actually do. Well, Whereas, even the good ones are, are kind of painful in that because I've, I've worked with like DBI and DBD uh, under Perl. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's got like the question marks that you can just put in and everything. And, and so you can write your, your, you can write the select statement beforehand and then pop in the mm-hmm. values afterward and that but of course yeah, you find that one thing where you don't pass it a value and then your string your whole string com- becomes crap yeah you know, it's just so awful. and a lot of my standpoint of this is that um i'm coming from sql alchemy i i love it to death um it is by far the best orm i ever played with it was one of my top five reasons to do python development was when i got introduced to sql alchemy so I can definitely see that there are there are bad ORMs and there are good ORMs and and I'm not even going to say they're bad. There are ORMs that have different use cases. How about that? So, but one of my favorite things about an ORM is building queries dynamically, where I have a function say get list, and I can pass an extra uh, you know keyword arg that says you know get list users get list with log, which is maybe a log of their logins or something that I keep. And if with log is true, then I do a join and I actually query and get the log uh, items out. And when I get a result back, I get the user and all of his info along with all of his logs that I, I want to join across. And my code, my API I wrote for that is very nice and clean. I'd have to write out a new method, which you find in PHP land all the freaking time, which is user dot, you know, get log, user dot get log underscore with, uh, you know, get list underscore with log user dot, you know, get list with um, address, you know, whatever, where they basically have a different function call for every join or every every other kind of list you want to get. That's just messy and, and API pollution in my in my opinion. Yeah. So um, again, I think that's long term beneficial and I don't see that having more bad consequences than good ones. The the the, the negative to that is that something is generating your SQL for you. And I know that one of the things is people say that, oh, ORMs, they're those tools that say you don't need to know SQL. If you go look at my second or third slide of my presentation, I will basically tell you using an ORM does not excuse you from knowing SQL. Right. And other languages, too, have, have decent ORMs, too. I mean, Ruby's got active Ru- active record. Um, see, so that's where we're going to get to a discussion here. So, okay. Um, and, and this also – because active record is – it's an okay ORM for what it does, but it, it's limiting in the fact that you know doing some of the stuff like the 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 joins and the flexibility to map uh, your ORM to an existing data store, uh, existing database that has an existing uh, infrastructure or, or layout is just very very hard with these active record kind of things. They they enforce you to have standards that this is what the primary key is. This is how the primary keys you know this is how the the tables join. It's very hard to do things like do uh, custom foreign key relationships between things and all that. However, my thing with that is that there are still great tools because 
when you have an active record implementation that and it forces you all these different rules and regulations, these these standards that you follow, what you get in exchange is all these things that do active record all give you great benefits as far as your application goes. Like let's use Django for example. Um, Django what I has what I would consider a limited ORM. Coming from SQL Alchemy, it is limited. However, because of that, you get this nifty admin tool out of the box just to start up. If you want to do an app that you can just shove in the records you own and to, and to count how many of them are from, you know, tool, it's very easy within a single day to just go, boom, Django start a project. Here's a database model for record and artist. Let's go. And then you hit start, and right away you've got a form you can go start typing in. It may not be the right form. It may not be the prettiest form. You may not be able to use it for a whole long time. But because you have this existing knowledge of how your data model is going to look, Django can provide you with these tools that help short-circuit a lot of the development time you would have to do. So it's a trade-off for sure, but depending on what you need, it may be a completely worthwhile trade-off. Well, the two, and it, it seems that his argument is that just because you can come up with this one corner case, you should never use this ever. And I'm sorry, but development is all about trying to find you know, the 90% solution and then figuring out how to work around the 10% mm -hmm. that doesn't work. Right. And also, stuff like SQL Alchemy, I don't know about you, but the folks that write SQL Alchemy and work on SQL Alchemy are really good <laughs> at what they do. They Mike, work on problems that make my head spin. Yeah, Mike Bayer is a super genius. He's certified. I, I got a certificate. I got to send him the mail him a certificate. I've got one printed off here somewhere for him. Uh, <laughs> no, definitely. But see, so, I mean, basically, there's, he's got a whole lot of reasons in this article about why this is bad. People don't know SQL, whatever. I think it's all crap. I mean, you're, I, and what I really like to do is to compare this to other tools out there that everybody else uses. So, anybody here ever use jQuery? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hands, hands are in the air, okay. Now, not everyone likes jQuery, but hey, most of us have used jQuery. And we've all met that idiot who went to Stack Overflow and said, hey, how do I do a for loop in jQuery? Right? And after you got over the urge to break your monitor and bash someone's head in, you realize that, okay, this person is on some extreme. I'm not going to listen to them. Right? However, we've all used it because it abstracts uh, the differences between different web browsers for us, and it helps us do things in a better, a better way. It helps our development, uh, our, our cycle, uh, how long it takes us to do things, their mental model of like, you know, I don't have to worry about that. Oh, yeah, you know, this has been tested on IE, you know, six because jQuery does that testing for me. If I'm using jQuery code, I know it's been tested rigorously across a whole stream of browsers. And so to say that, oh, using an ORM is an anti-pattern, I would say if you're going to make that argument, then you better come and tell me that using a JavaScript library is an anti-pattern as well because it's really the same dippy thing. I mean, I'm using an ORM to, to be able to do things across different databases, and jQuery is enabling me to do JavaScript code that works across different browsers. And so you can get to the argument that people don't know JavaScript, and hey, that's true. There are some that don't, but that does not make using a JavaScript library an anti-pattern. So anyone ever use a templating language to build or, or respond, you know, to build giant swabs of text that you use, whether it's a web request that you, you know, you re response, HTML comes back in a template, you send an email using a template language to build the template for the email and then send it out. Again, I would say, hey, why are you doing that, right? Because, I mean, after all, you can do that all with just string concatenation. You know, why are you allowing some other tool to step in and escape your HTML strings so that you, you don't need to worry about cross-site scripting attacks? You know, you do that because these things are tools that provide you a benefit. 
You know, I'm using an ORM because it automatically makes sure that it always uses bind parameters on all the queries, and I don't have to worry about escaping individually all my little where clauses and everything. So, again, if you're you're saying ORM is an anti-pattern, I would say, hey, you know what? Um, templates, templating languages, those are kind of anti-patternish. You should really stop using those. So, well, it's, it's all about knowing your tools too, and knowing where their benefits are and what the weaknesses are, and you're going to do that with anything. I mean, you know, if 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 we're going to get to the level of everything that creates abstraction is an anti-pattern, then okay, yeah. we should all be writing assembler, you know? <laughs> exactly. Hey, anyone use a garbage collector? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, you, you, you are relying on some tool to provide that function for you and let it worry about it underneath. So, uh, again, but anyone that does decent code is going to have to understand how their garbage collector works in order to not get raked, you know, raked over the coals when it does something horribly, you know, bad for the way you're doing your development. So, and I don't know. I guess get that one letter, yes, I know an assembler is actually an extraction too. I should probably <laughs> flip in the bits themselves. <laughs> but anyways, I just these kind of blog posts what what gets me isn't so much that someone writes this stuff. It's when you get down to the comments and you just people like, "Oh, I totally agree." And, "Oh, I totally agree." And, "Oh, I've known something was bad about ORMs. I just couldn't put my finger on what it was, and you totally clarified this for me." What gave me hope was that this was uh, linked off of a Reddit post, and the Reddit comments seem to be much more sane. Well, much more along my line of thinking of you're using a tool, use it or don't, I don't care, but just using a tool does not mean it's some sort of anti-pattern. So, um, I think, too, it's, it's, it's the relief that someone says, this sucks, so I don't have to learn it. And I, I think that's, that's, that's the relief that people were like, okay, you know, I, before I was going to have to learn jQuery, and I was going to have to learn SQL Alchemy, and I was going to have to learn, you know, Pyramid or something like that, but God, thank you so much that you told me that these all were anti-patterns in that. So then I can just write, you know, Python CGI that talks directly to the database. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, uh, this got under my skin just because I had seen it, seen it before from other people, and just all the all the agreement with it just drove me bonkers. I, I really would like want to get all these people in a room and to like either teach them or or just put a bomb in the middle of the room and walk away. I don't know which, but. Um, <laughs> I'll work on that. So there you go. Here's a Rick's rant built into a local cat episode for your your entertainment. Uh, all right, how many guys using an ORM? Send us, let us know. Feedback at localcast.net. Read the article. Am I insane? Am I missing some great bullet point here that this guy is making an actual valid point? I, I'd really want to know. And how if full of crap want, are we? <laughs> yeah. And if you want to have a discussion, I am more than happy to discuss this stuff because obviously I have an opinion. Believe it or not. Deep cleansing breaths. Breathe in, <gasps> breathe out. <sighs> All right, so that brings us to the book section of this show. And I see that I'm alone on the book segment, huh? No, you're not alone yet. Oh, I'm not? Um, all right, no, we have to talk no. about it. Okay. So yes. my book for this, uh, this one, I, I just finished reading uh, Different, Escaping the Competitive Herd by Youngmi Moon. I, I know the name is one of the more interesting authors I have ever picked up a book by, but wow. it, that's what it is. And it's basically an interesting, it's, um, I guess, I don't know, uh, Young Me here is a uh, market research instructor, teacher, and uh, not market research, but just um, marketing, I guess is the better phrase, uh, instructor. And so it was interesting to kind of uh, go through some of the um, 
the the bullet points of how brands differentiate themselves in unique and interesting ways. Um, how you know brands like um, Mini when it came out, you know everyone knew as well as a small car. And, and in the U.S. where we love our big giant automobiles, they they just kind of like threw it in your face that it was small. You know, like it was um, you know the Mini smaller you know smaller than you actually think it is and. And, and took the, their perceived negative and actually just, just blew it up to be the central point um, of their whole I mean, branding. So that scheme. my wife wants to have a Mini Cooper. I know, and then everybody wants one, right? <laughs> so it's like everyone knows it's small, and it's smaller than I even think it is, and yet still everybody wants one. Uh, it's a great read to kind of see how some of the brands out there uh, just do crazy things that you, you think normally, like, no, I, we can't do that. That's just, that wouldn't work. Um, you know, personally, I love the example of IKEA is in here. because you know what what other brand says hey not only is all your stuff going to wear out in a year and you should come back and buy more but you better bring a car and you better spend the day here because you're not going to be able to walk through our you know walk in and out of our store in a hurry and when you get home i hope you ate a good hearty lunch because you're gonna have to spend hours putting all the stuff together wait a minute Wait a minute. No, that's seriously. not that's not what they're selling. They're selling that you can come in here, you can try it out, you can bring it home. It's going to fit in a Volkswagen Beetle because god forbid you go over to Office Max and pick up one of their gigantic desks that doesn't fit in any known vehicle known to man. Right. <laughs> no, my, my thing is that despite all those, you know, the negatives they know about, they turn them into selling points of the brand. You know, plan on spending your day here. Because it's a fun place to be, you know. We're gonna have, we're gonna have, right, right, we've got, <laughs> we've got, you know, you know, nice things here. While our while our furniture doesn't last forever, they have kind of, you know, like sushi and more higher end food items that they serve, that they have there. And then, you know, people actually get kind of into the brand and they, they they have like build parties when they get home. People come over and they get together and they all like, you know, put together the stuff and it turns into an a. a some sort of brand engagement after the fact. You buy your stuff and you're still engaged with the brand, even though what they're doing is making you put together your own stuff. And so it was just really interesting on how some brands like take their negatives, you know, turn it into really interesting brand uh, uh, marketing ideas. Um, I don't know. It was an interesting read. I don't know that anything I'm going to sit down and use, but it was uh, one of those like, you know, I'm, 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 I can't look at more code right now. So, it, but still interesting kind of to go through. How many Apple examples? That was what was great. The Apple examples didn't really come towards towards the end when they were okay. when the author was going like now we've we've gone through individual um, items on like you know there are brands that do X Y Z and then towards the end they were like and here's Apple that does like all of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was it was cool and it was interesting. I recommend it. It's it's a pretty cheap read. It looks like I got uh, twelve bucks on um, on the Kindle. Uh, it just text reads just fine and so it was a good little off read for me. Very cool. So what, what so, am I preparing for? So, Rick, do you read comic books? You know, I haven't read a comic book since 10th grade, maybe. 10th grade? But okay. But I still have some on the shelf from 10th grade. So That you haven't read yet? or No, I read them. I, just, okay. I, have, I have some that I just never got rid of. I just put them on okay. the shelf, and they're in a little plastic baggie, and I, I don't even know what they are anymore. Okay. Well, this recommendation isn't so much a book as it is a series. Um, there are There's this series called Mouse Guard. It is written by a guy based out of Ferndale, Michigan, uh, by the name of David Peterson. Okay. And the artwork is outstanding. 
Uh, it's an Eisner award-winning bi-monthly comic book series, but they've also got some collections out there. Uh, what it is, it is a bunch of uh, little mice that are, this is set in like 1152 and 1149, uh, so they're medieval mice and that, but they all, uh, they're, they're trying to protect you know their, their little uh, area and such from all the big bad nasties and such. It is a very cute series. Uh, the the characters are very well drawn. I cannot hi- I cannot re- recommend this highly enough. Uh, definitely check it out. Uh, there's a couple books out there. There's fall uh, 1152, winter 1152, spring 1152. There's also the Legends of the Guard. Um, I, I picked these up over at Borders when they were uh, having their major major clearances and that. But definitely check them out. It's it will hook you. Cool, cool, interesting. We all need some good story time once in a while. Well, I figure you know we do a lot of these technical books and that, and this is something that's a little not quite technical, and it's also a shout out to a homeboy. So there you go. We like the locals. All right. So with that, I think we're going to bring this local cast to an end. We want to thank our SourceForge interviewee Elizabeth Naramore. Elizabeth, thank you very <laughs> much for sitting down with Craig. Hey, I didn't. I wasn't there, so I missed it. I know so you I, weren't there. You were, I, you were you off. Forgive me, and you, and you didn't put it in the show notes, so I can't read it. So, oh, well, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thank you, Elizabeth, for sitting down with us, and we will have hopefully two more interviews coming up shortly. Let us know what you think. Feedback at localcast.net. And with that, good night.